First John chapter four verses seven through twelve. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Last week, several people responded to the message with a question. They heard two things that seemed apparently inconsistent. On the one hand, I stressed that our ability to listen with receptive hearts, chapter 4, verse 6, and our ability to confess Christ come in the flesh with sincere hearts, chapter 4, verse 2, were a gift of the Holy Spirit, which we cannot perform without his enablement. And on the other hand, I pleaded at the end of the service for people to call upon the Holy Spirit, to believe and to listen with receptive hearts. And the question was raised, isn't it inconsistent on the one hand to describe a person's condition as basically helpless spiritually deaf and blind and dead, and then on the other hand, to argue with them, plead with them, to see and hear and live? Isn't it inconsistent to say you are dead in your trespasses and sins? Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Yes, it is, unless you believe that the Word of God has life-giving power. If the Word of God carries the power of God, then it's not inconsistent to say, Lazarus, you're dead. Come forth! If the Word of God is anointed by the Spirit of God with power that brings forth from things that are not things that are, then it isn't inconsistent to say to the darkness, let there be light. If the Word of God is the power of God, anointed, infused with the living Holy Spirit, then it's not inconsistent to say to the lame, walk, and to the deaf, hear, 
and to the blind, see. Is it? The apparent inconsistency between the spiritual deadness in the world and the demand for spiritual life in the gospel is not solved biblically by saying deadness isn't really deadness. It's solved biblically by saying he who is in the word is greater than he who is in the world. The word of God is living and active. It creates what it demands in the lives of the sheep of God. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cause new birth in those who hear the gospel, then it's not inconsistent to preach the gospel to those who cannot hear in themselves. It's not inconsistent for Jesus to say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then to say, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come. It's not inconsistent if the command contains the power of God. Now, the same kind of inconsistency is in today's text. That's why I made a big deal out of it. Verse 8 of chapter 4, 1 John He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Let's ponder those few words for just a moment. In other words, if you don't love each other, if you're not a loving person, then you don't know God. You've never known God. If you want to see a parallel text in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, Almost the same words, surely the same meaning. Chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him. See, there's that word, know. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And since John, as the choir ministered to us in truth so clearly, since John believes all commandments are summed up in the command to love, he can now say in chapter 4, verse 8, If you don't love, then you don't know him. Now, here's what I infer from that verse. Loving each other follows necessarily from knowing God. If you could know God and not be a loving person... Verse 8 would be false. Because, verse 8 says, if you are not loving, you don't know God. Here's the inconsistency. If being a loving person is the inevitable result of knowing God, then why does John, in verse 7, command people who know God to love each other. 
Verse 7, Beloved, let's love each other. That is the same inconsistency that people detected last week, only it's the other side of the coin. Last week, the question was, why should we command a person to do something who can't do it? And this week, the question is, why command a person to do something if he can't help but do it? The reason I push these questions out into the open and lay them on the table is because I want Bethlehem to think the way the apostles thought. The world has many different ideas than this, many different ways of solving these problems than the Bible does. I want Bethlehem to think God's thoughts. And therefore, we've got to lay these kinds of things out on the table and try to ask, what's John's answer to those questions? Because John's inspired, and I'm not, and you're not. So we need to submit our minds to John's mind here. Here's my suggestion of what I think the biblical answer to those two questions is. First, why tell a person to do a thing, like believe, if in himself he can't do it because he's dead in trespasses and sins? And the answer is because in telling him to do it with the word of God, God can use your word to make him alive and give him ability to believe. First Peter chapter one, verse 23 says, you have been born anew through the living and abiding what? What? Word. How do you get born again? If you're dead in trespasses and sins and you need to be raised from the dead, like Ephesians 5.16 says, how does it happen? Through the living and abiding Word of God. So it's not inconsistent to say with the Word of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And trust that the Holy Spirit will fill that word with the power of God and quicken the hearers and bring them to life. Second, why tell a person to do a thing if he can't help but do it? That's the situation in today's text. Doesn't the inevitability of love in the life of those who are born again mean that commands to love are unnecessary and superfluous, a wasted effort on the preacher's part. That's human reasoning. Is it biblical reasoning? Let's take an analogy. Suppose you are about to give birth to a baby, a baby girl, and God comes to you and says, this baby's going to live to be a hundred years old, and then she's going to die in a ripe old age and go to heaven. And you take your little baby home from the hospital, and you don't feed her anything. And your husband looks at you and says, What are you doing? Why don't you feed that baby? And you say, 
Because God promised me she's going to live to be 100 years old. So I don't need to feed her. God will keep his promise. And this husband, he's very perceptive. He says, How do you know God didn't mean that he would see to it that this baby gets taken care of till she's 100 years old? How do you know that God won't let an irresponsible mother drop dead so that he can fulfill his promise through a mother who will feed this little girl? No answer. Because she doesn't know that. Now let's apply the analogy. God comes to us in the Bible and says to us, right here in verse 8, Knowing God always, without exception, results in loving people. In effect, he promises that anybody who knows God will be a loving person. That's what verse 8 says. So somebody suggests in their human wisdom, well, we don't need to feed these little baby Christians because God said they're going to be loving. They're going to get mature. They're going to get sanctified. You don't need to feed them with the Word of God, teach them how to pray. To which we should answer with the husband, how do you know God didn't mean that he would see to it that these children are going to get fed love-producing food? And how do you know that if you, the shepherd, pastor, fail to do it, he won't just get rid of you and put a pastor in here that will do what enables his promise to be fulfilled? How do you know that? We don't know that. In fact, we know that that's exactly what God means. The most natural biblical answer to the question, why command a person to do something he can't help doing? Why command a believer to love if the believer can't help but love is that God intends to fulfill his promise by means of his word. It's that simple. God has ordained to keep you and me alive in love by means of feeding us love-producing food. The Spirit of God fulfills the promise of God by means of the Word of God. Why should we invent the most unnatural, imaginable way for God to fulfill His promises? When in fact it lies on the face of Scripture throughout, he intends to fulfill his absolute promises by means of the Word of God and prayer. Which implies, by the way, that if you use your human reasoning to say, I'm born again, all people who are born again are promised to be loving people and make it to heaven. So I don't need to listen to any Word of God and I don't need to pray. What you do when you say that, is you take yourself out of the God-ordained channels of preservation and you demonstrate, if you pursue in that, you were not born again. Because people who are born again 
avail themselves of the means by which God fulfills His promises to those who are born again and secures them forever. So it's not inconsistent for John to teach in verse 8 that all who know God will definitely be loving people and to command in verse 7, be loving people. Because the command is the means by which the Spirit of God fulfills the promise of God to make His people loving. This is the genius of biblical ethics. Oh, how I hope we can get a handle on this. You've heard it many times. Become what you are is the genius of biblical ethics. Or another way to put it would be, do what God is at work in you to do. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. If we could get a handle on this and live in this reality, it would guard us on the one hand from a legalism that boasts in its obedience. You can't boast in God's work. And it would guard us against, on the other hand, a lawlessness that says, I don't need to hear any commands anymore. I'm born again. I'm on my way to glory. You don't need to command me anything. Don't give me any scriptural warnings. It guards us from those two errors that swamp the church. Legalism and lawlessness. And puts us right square in the power of the Holy Spirit. Enabling us to walk to glory. Frank Tillepaw, last Friday night, raised this question. I think it's the most important question the first John raises for us. He said... When the world looks at the church, do they see a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? That's a scary question. That's the most important question to ask in this book for Bethlehem. When they look at Bethlehem, not just a brief look if you're on a downer, but look at it. I mean, get a good picture of the whole body life. Do they see a love that can only be accounted for by virtue of supernatural work of God? It has to be. If we're a church. Verse 7 says, He who loves is born of God. That must be a supernatural Love that is possible only because of God. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of people who love who aren't born again. Right? Sort of. That is, there are loves that are begotten by sexual desire. There are loves that are begotten by natural affection. There are loves that are begotten by philanthropic aspiration. And none of these loves are any necessary sign that the person is born again. Because according to chapter 5, verse 1, you've got to believe if you're born again. And a lot of these people don't believe in Jesus. So, verse 7, when it says, He who loves is born of God, is either a naive... Overgeneralization, which I reject because I don't think John is naive. 
Or it means there is a kind of love, there is a kind of love, which when you see it, you know God's at work behind it. What matters more than anything else at Bethlehem is that we find that and experience it. Nothing, nothing else matters. If, if that's not here, nothing's here. I want to be like that so bad. I want our church to be like that so bad. It is the most thrilling thing in the world to have such a deep experience of the love of God that it spills over with the very love of God onto other people. There is no more joyful, fulfilling experience in the world, even when it costs you a lot. That's what this letter is all about. Being so deeply transformed by the love of God within that we spill over with the love of God without. It was really hard for me to decide what to focus on in these few verses. We could preach on these verses ten weeks without a breath. It is so hard to pick up what phrase we should work on. But here's the one I want to spend the rest of our time on mainly because I thought it's the one you would have most questions about. Namely, the last phrase in verse 8. God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the deepest statement of the book, I think. And it's heavy. It's beyond me. So all I ask myself is, can I make a few baby steps into the uh, shores of this ocean-like statement? And I want to try. I think it wouldn't be there unless the biblical writer wanted us to try to get our feet wet in this truth. So here's my effort. I take this statement to me that uh, there is something about God's nature that makes love a necessary part of it. That's the way I start. There's something about God's nature that makes love a necessary part of it. It's got to be there. Which means it must have been there before there were any people or any angels or anything outside God to love. If He is love, then it must have been a necessary part of God before there was anybody outside God to love. To love. Now that gives me a clue as to what it might mean. I want you to turn with me to, to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, if you're looking at your Bible. And we'll keep our finger in there because the rest of what I have to say this morning is really an interplay between the prayer of Jesus in John 17 and the words of John in 1 John 4. And I feel... Uh, justified in using John to inform, uh, using the gospel to the, inform the epistle for a couple of reasons. One, the same author wrote them, and two, the wording in the verses I'm going to look at is similar. Let's look at verse 24 of John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am to behold my glory, which thou hast given me. And then here's the key phrase for me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. So I conclude that the reason love was a necessary part of God's nature from all eternity 
is that God has had a perfect image of himself in his son from all eternity, and he loves the son. Here's the simplest way I know how to put it. God is love because the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is a relationship of love. God is love. Because the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is a relationship of love. Just think of it now. The Son of God was never created. Don't ever think that Christmas was the beginning of the Son of God. The Son of God, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Father has eternally begotten God the Son. They are co Eternal. Neither one preceded the other. God never had a beginning. And as long as there has been God, God has imaged forth or begotten His Son. So that as long as there has been God the Father and God the Son from all eternity, there has been a relationship between them. And that relationship is love. An infinite energetic, omnipotent delight in the glory of the Father by the Son and the Son by the Father. And since I'm a Trinitarian, my understanding of the Holy Spirit is that He is that love. The Spirit that has flowed between the Father and the Son in infinite love and infinite delight stands forth with all the perfections of the origin of that love in the person of the Holy Spirit. And my, does that unlock treasures in this epistle. Read with me verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. This is next week's text, but I want you to see a confirmation of this human and I know inadequate conception of the Holy Trinity. Verses 12 and 13 of 1 John 4. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit. Verse 12 says that God abides in us and His love, therefore, is being perfected in us. And verse 13 says God abides in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And I think these are two ways of saying the same thing. Is not the perfecting of the love of God within us the same as the giving us of His Spirit? If the Spirit is the infinite and personal love of God flowing back and forth... Does it not make sense that when the Holy Spirit is poured into our life, we are given the very love of God and it is perfected in us and through us as we live it out in community. Now John makes a connection in verse 8 between knowing this God and being loving people. So we want to try to understand that connection. How is it that knowing this God necessarily results in becoming 
loving people. And here's another link up with John chapter 17. So if you want to flip back to where your finger is in John 17, the last and most stunning verse in his prayer, verse 26, answers the question, why knowing God produces love in us. Father, I made known. I just stop right there. Notice the connection between the idea of knowing, knowing God. That's the issue. Why is it that knowing God in chapter 4, 8 results in being a loving person? This verse gives the answer, I think. Father, I made known to them thy name, that is thy essence. And I will make it known. Why? What will the result be? That the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, knowing God. That's the issue. Why is it that knowing God in chapter 4, 8 results in being a loving person? This verse gives the answer, I think. Father, I made known to them thy name, that is thy essence. And I will make it known. Why? What will the result be? That the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. When you come to know God in a personal, communal sense, you love the Son with the love of the Father. This is stunning. We are swept into the fellowship of the Trinity when we come to know God. When you know God, the very love that flows between the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit who is that love is put within you. So that you don't love Jesus by yourself. God the Father loves Jesus in and through you. This is amazing. This is beyond all human comprehension. That the love that flowed from all eternity between God the Father and God the Son in answer to the prayer of our Lord will be put in your heart so that as it becomes perfected, you will have the joy of loving the Son of God with the infinite resources with which God Almighty the Father loves the Son. That's the answer to the question, why do we become loving people when we know God? Because knowing this God in the sense of a communal, personal, Acquaintance results in the Father's love being poured into us for the Son. Which leaves us with one last question. Why is it that that kind of infinite and intense love for the Son makes you love other people? Because that's what the verse is ultimately about in verse 7. Let's love each other. How does that work? Words, words are inadequate. You, you've got to experience it, but I'll, I'll try. I think verses 9 and 10 give us the best clue to the answer. In verses 9 and 10, John sets forth for us visibly the love of God in Jesus Christ. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Now, let's let's go back and just think about this. The father's delight in the glory of the son is infinite delight. Nevertheless, he was willing to send his son to experience rejection and torture and death in order to give you life while you were still his enemy. So here's the question we have to ask. Can you delight in the son with the delight that the Father has in the Son and live at odds with His mission to lay down His life to bring life to others. Just ask yourself that question. Pose the psychological possibility. Is it psychologically possible to love the Son with the love of the Father that sent the Son And delights infinitely in the Son. Is it possible to love that Son with the love of the Father and live at odds with the mission of the Son? Which was a mission to sacrifice Himself for others. And John's answer is, it cannot be done. That's the point of the book. It cannot be done. To claim that you love the Son and live at odds with the mission of the Son, that is, live outside love. Hold a grudge against your neighbor, your boss, your mother, your former boyfriend, and claim to delight with the Father's delight in the Son who died for His enemies is impossible. It is hypocrisy. This book is written to expose that hypocrisy and summon us to know God afresh and thus to experience the inflowing of the love of the Father for the Son and the consequent delight in the mission of the Son and the consequent sacrifice of ourselves for the good of others.